It's Daily Thunder, booming out the truth of Jesus Christ live every weekday morning from the Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado. To learn more, visit ellerslie.com. In August of 1942, Joseph Stalin has one thing on his mind, Operation Sledgehammer. He's stuck on it. But Churchill and Roosevelt have concluded that Operation Sledgehammer is not a good idea. Uh-oh, we have problems amongst the Allies. Hey, this is Eric. Before we dive into today's Daily Thunder message and stand amazed at the diplomatic abilities of Winston Churchill, I wanted to mention the unique online discipleship that we are offering this summer. Through June 30th, you can still sign up for our Ellerslie Online Training. It's five weeks of our classic discipleship material. And get this, we are offering it on a donation-only basis, which means that you pay what you can afford. I hope you are able to take part. Please visit ellerslie.com forward slash daily to learn more. Now let's head to Moscow in August of 1942. Churchill and Stalin are meeting face to face for the very first time. And words like somber, grim, awkward, and uncomfortable are common adjectives used to describe their initial encounter. But just like in our relationship with God, it can often start off a bit rough and uncomfortable, and then because of the Holy Spirit's persistence, there comes a breakthrough. I've been going through sort of a sub-series in my overall series, and I was focusing more on the Holocaust, and I'm going to take a step away from that. I, I may end up dipping my toe back in those waters, but I feel like, I feel satisfied, sort of like I felt God literally led me down that path, and so the past three episodes have been very significant, I think, for me in defining uh, my thought patterns and just establishing my footing in regards to how we live in a time when culture decidedly goes against God. What do we do? Now, I've known the answer to that for years. It's not like this is a new exercise, but it's an important exercise to refresh. And I think all of us need to be alert in our soul to the condition of uh, the world around us and never presume that it's healthy. Never even presume, like I, I stopped presuming that when I'd walk into a Christian bookstore, the books on the shelf would be healthy. And that happened a couple decades ago. But there's some people that haven't quite caught up with that notion. And so as a result, if you see it in Christian television or you see it in a Christian bookstore, you just, you trust it. If you see it in a Christian music, you know, uh, section, you trust it as opposed to measuring and discerning. And we always need to weigh and test the spirit behind something. The last thing we want to be as Christians is dupable uh, or able to be uh, had because we just fall for the, the classic, oh, it's Christian. Uh, come on, guys. Uh, something that's Christian, I mean, the angel of light, you ever heard of that? That's something that is going to masquerade as if it is light when in actuality it's not. A wolf in sheep's clothing. That's something that's going to masquerade as a sheep, but is actually a wolf. And so this is a pattern that has been common. This is one of the tactics of the devil. So as a result, we need to be watchful. And right now, in a sense, we're seeing the church being tested and proven. And so much of the church is pandering after public approval right now. It's like, no, no, we just want you to know we're with you in this. And so some of us that are standing there going, what? What happened to all my buddies? <laughs> they just all sort of went over there to the politically correct side. I, I presume from the very beginning, and maybe I'm odd, but that as a Christian, I'm going to be politically incorrect, and it's not because I'm trying to be. I just 
am because I'm following Christ. And he is just always socially, religiously, and politically incorrect. We, we did a study on Jesus on just that front. And we just went through, I mean, the book of John would be a great one for it. He's going to be an affront at every single turn to the religious system and to the social systems of that day. And so for us, we need to remember who we're following. We're not following culture. We're following Jesus. This particular message is going to be again in 1942. I, I, for those of you that have been following this, like how long is he going to be in 1942? I'm getting close to the, the end, okay? It, it's, it's been a big year. I mean, Pearl Harbor at the end of 1941 really set off a chain uh, reaction. And so I've been trying to keep up with it, okay, guys? It's, it's just a lot. I, I'm not the one that bombed Pearl Harbor. I'm just trying to respond to it. We've got some collateral damage all over the world now. And so we've got a lot of activity, a lot of action, and it's been a very, very exciting year. Uh, this one has an unusual name. It's called Stuck on Sledgehammer. Uh, I had a, it sounds sort of like a a song title for like a rap uh, type of song. It's, it's not. It's a very interesting title. I had a State Villa number seven was my uh, t working title for the last week on this one. And I threw it out at the last moment and went with Stuck on Sledgehammer. Uh, and it's a uh, very interesting study on the Holy Spirit and how, it, how the Holy Spirit works in our lives. And I think you guys will enjoy this. This is, this is somewhat of a fun message because we have a significant tension, and I've, I've, I've found it humorous in studying World War II of the relationship between Winston Churchill and Joseph Stalin. Because Joseph Stalin and Winston Churchill are diametrical opposites. These, these two are not of the same ilk, same mindset. They are so different, and yet they need to somehow work together to stop Hitler. And Stalin, just before uh, Operation Barbarossa is gonna launch in 1941, which is the German attack on Soviet Russia, is going to be against uh, Great Britain and desiring Great Britain to be destroyed. So then suddenly Germany is going to turn on Soviet Russia and attack Soviet Russia, and now Stalin is in an awkward position where he needs to somehow ally now with the very person he wanted dead. <laughs> Can't you just feel the tensions? Now these two need to somehow learn how to communicate <laughs> and work together. And there is one thing that Stalin wants in the very beginning. So first of all, Stalin only seems to be able to look at this war through his own eyes. Soviet Russia, you need to give us all your resources, Great Britain. America, send all your resources here. You know, we need help. And so almost like he's implying that it's Great Britain and America's fault that Germany is attacking Russia. Because he knows, Stalin knows that the pressure on Great Britain is immediately uh, lessened the moment uh, Germany turns on Soviet Russia. So Stalin can only see it through that lens, which has led to already in World War II some very unique tensions. And Churchill has been relinquishing a good deal of his military strength to support Russia. America has been relinquishing a good deal of its military strength to support uh, Soviet Russia. So I, it's, it's the USSR, but I, I'll call it Russia because that's, that's what it historically has always been and that's what I know it as. And so I'll add Soviet to it just, just in case you're wondering. It is the USSR, which is, I, I really don't like that name, never have, but that is the correct uh, way of saying it. And so uh, we are in a very unique point in the middle to end of uh, 1942 where they need to define what we could call the 42 offensive. I did a whole message on the 42 offensive. And this is 
the tactical maneuver of the United States and Great Britain to distract the German armies from Russia. And so they have something called Operation Sledgehammer. Okay, that's, that's obviously where stuck on sledgehammer is going to come from. And this is what Stalin has been proposing since middle of 1941. Okay, so Stalin has been waiting over a year for Great Britain to finally get its act together and do Operation Sledgehammer. And so uh, Winston Churchill has forewarned multiple times to Stalin that this isn't, doesn't work the way that you think it works. And Stalin's like, just attack them on the French coast. Just go across the English Channel and attack them. Because we're dying over here. We have all these Germans coming against us. If they feel that there's a real attack there, they'll have to divert their attentions away. And it, it makes sense, right? But Churchill's going to say, Stalin, I know you don't understand how the English Channel works, but an attack across water is very different than an attack across land. And you can't just show up. Uh, you'll be defeated before you can even get off the boat. And so as a result, this isn't as easy as you're saying it is. And Stalin's like, come on. If I was there, I would have dealt, dealt with this a long time ago. So you can just sort of feel those tensions. Winston Churchill is an expert. He used to be over the entire Navy. He knows everything about amphibious warfare. And Stalin knows nothing about it. So Winston Churchill, you're going to see his behavior is very noble uh, through this. It's humorous, very noble compared to Stalin. Stalin is like a great picture of the flesh. He really is. I mean, so self-centered, so egotistical, never is wrong. He's always right. And Winston Churchill sort of has to eat it, you know, constantly. He has to put up with this. So it's, it's a fun relationship to study. So the decision on the 42 offensive, the United States is going to send out its main generals. They're going to meet in London, which is what the, the, my message, the 42 offensive, was about. And they're going to actually land on something. And this is a huge decision in, in the flow of history, a huge decision, even though most of us have never heard of it, is they are not going to do sledgehammer. I know. See, when you don't do something, it doesn't stand out in history. It's when you do something. But they are not going to attack across the English Channel, the coastline of northern France. And if you know your World War II history, you know that that day is coming. It's called Normandy, the beaches of Normandy, D-Day. And that's actually going to be that long-awaited attack on northern France. But Stalin has wanted it in 1941. And now it's like almost you know, closing in on the end of 1942, and they still don't have their act together. This is a very, very difficult operation to attack across the English Channel, which is why D-Day, as we build up to this, is going to become more and more significant to all of us when you understand the history of it, and you understand that Sledgehammer was its original name. This is how it's going to work. Okay, how could we do this? And so the Americans and the, and the British are going to decide we're just going to lose. Uh, there's no way we can pull this off. And so, yeah, it'll be a momentary distraction for the Germans, but then we're going to fall to pieces and we'll look worse. We'll actually be in a worse position if we attack now. So they have a different proposal, and that's called Operation Torch, which is to attack northern Africa, which, you know, to which is actually a brilliant plan. I'm just going to let you know, cat out of the bag, uh, spoiler alert. It's a great plan. There's a problem. Yeah, let, me, let me walk through that. So it's not to hit the shores of France, but North Africa and to seize control of the Mediterranean. Uh, so I have a picture. It doesn't really translate very well onto that screen because we're having trouble with the, the bulb. So you may need to look at the other. But uh, up in the top right, this is a picture of, 
Europe, North Africa uh, during uh, World War II in 1942. I borrowed someone else's uh, picture because for me to build this picture was quite uh, an e extensive process. So I just did sort of like image World War II, uh, 1942 Europe, you know, <laughs> I got this, this works out great. Uh, so we're gonna have to go with this one. The red, you'll see the Soviet Union up uh, to the, the top right, and you'll see the blue is going to be allied, okay? The rest of it, uh, you're gonna see a lot of gray, and you're seeing a lot of water in there too. It doesn't really translate as water, but that bluish color, if you can call it greenish blue color, is water. And uh, anything that's white or whitish is going to be neutral, okay? So most of the different shades of gray are controlled by the Germans, and it's probably to the degree of occupation and to the degree that they're involved. And so what you see is Germany is swinging against Soviet Union with all its strength. What Stalin wants is for Great Britain to hit in that top star. You see, I put a star up there in northern France, and that's what Stalin is after. And it's not that the Allies don't agree that this would be helpful. But to cross that English Channel, and amphibious warfare has a whole different uh, amount of details to it. I mean, there's certain times a year you really can't even do it because of the rough waters. And there's certain uh, factors that play into this. There's a reason, I mean, even Hitler planned to come across and attack Great Britain. Uh, it was right around the Battle of Britain uh, in 1940. And he never did. The complexities of this maneuver, and this was in his strength when Great Britain was at its weakest point. He still could not figure out how to pull it off without just being devastated and losing all the momentum in the war. So he's actually going to pull back. And so you see the Allies now dealing with the same thing. How do we pull this off? And so I, I put another star in northern Africa. And so just to give you the idea of the change of where they would hit, according to Churchill, if you, if you were to read it, he's going to be able to say it's going to accomplish the same thing that Stalin wants in Sledgehammer, but even be better because we can win this one. And if we actually win, that's going to be far more advantageous than just to lose and have tried. And so as a result, this is at least the tactical maneuver that we're talking about today. But there is someone who isn't going to like this. His name is Joseph Stalin. So this is uh, the great diplomatic moment for Winston Churchill. He knows ahead of time that Stalin is not going to like this. He knows Stalin fairly well by this time. Stalin is a one-track mind, and he wants Operation Sledgehammer, and he wants it now. And so when are we going to do Operation Sledgehammer? I'm expecting that you're going to do Operation Sledgehammer. When are we doing Operation Sledgehammer? And then he'll even throw in jabs, you know, like, you guys are afraid. You're afraid of the Germans. We fight the Germans all day long, but you guys are afraid to fight the Germans. You just think you're going to lose, so you're not even willing to get bloody in the battle. You're wanting the Russians to do all the fighting for you. When are you guys going to do Operation Sledgehammer? So you can just imagine this calls for a lot of dignity, a lot of self-restraint. And so Churchill recognizes now, because the decision has been made, they are not doing Operation Sledgehammer. Imagine trying to convince uh, Stalin that that's a good idea. And so he decides that he is going to make a journey out to Moscow. And he is going to visit. Now, 
just to give you a little context, if you remember, because this is still in the same year that Churchill has been traveling back and forth to the United States multiple times, and he had a heart attack uh, in the midst of this. So this man's health is very sketchy, and he's closing in on 70 or so. He is not in the most robust uh, season of his life, uh, and yet uh, he is uh, needing to have these communications. Uh, he's needing to venture all the way to Moscow. And this is a tough trip. To, I mean, this is a very difficult trip because to get to, if we had the map up there, to get to Moscow, he is going to have to circumvent all of the airspace that the, uh, the German uh, Luftwaffe, their air force, could cover. And so this is a long journey. And, and so that's just a little background. He, but he believes face-to-face is critical. Now, remember what I said this is on? I said this is on the Holy Spirit. It's an interesting parallel that I'm going to draw out in this. And just to give you a little uh, hint up front, I'm going to liken Churchill to the Holy Spirit in this. I know that's, that's a risky thing to do because Churchill has a lot of uh, problems and the Holy Spirit is perfect and holy and right. But there is a behavioral quality in this, which is really interesting. And Stalin is going to be likened, sorry guys, that I'm going to do this to all of us, but to uh, all of us. Okay, we're the Stalin in this story. I know, isn't that terrible? I just threw us under the bus like that. So here's Joseph Stalin. He's the premier of, Soviet, of the Soviet Union during World War II. He's already convinced that sledgehammer is essential in 42. However, torch is what is best. So Operation Torch is going to be the attack on North Africa. And this is actually what is best right now. But how do you convince Stalin of this? And that's why uh, this is so unique. Because I'm going to be describing this idea of convincing. Historically, we have the term conviction of sin. And the Holy Spirit is going to bring about a conviction of sin. But back in old-timey Christianity, they didn't use the word conviction. They used the word convincing. So the Holy Spirit would convince us of our sin. And if you think about the subtlety of the language, you recognize it basically is meaning the same thing. But actually, I would say that for modern-day understanding, it's almost better to return to the word convincing because it helps us understand how the Holy Spirit works. Because we have a problem with the idea of conviction these days. We think it means condemnation. So the devil's done a real work on that. We think, oh, look at you, you're bad, you're terrible, and that's what conviction is. That isn't what conviction is. Conviction is a convincing of the soul that you are walking the wrong way, but that there is hope, and God loves you, and so, hey, please, repent and turn and walk in the correct way. Conviction, it always offers hope. It always offers a future. Condemnation offers no such thing. It's like shoving you off the cliff instead of gently turning you from going all over the cliff. And so convincing... I would say I really identify with that word. I, under, I identify with the word conviction too, believe me. However, the idea that the Holy Spirit convinces us makes a lot of sense uh, to me. And where he brings us from a place of obstinance to say, never will I do that. No, I will never do that. I would never agree with that. I would never live that way. I would never give up my life and just let God move in and do whatever he wants. To the point where in the very near future for making such adamant claims, you say, Lord, thank you for bringing me to this point. I want to live my life for you. Here's my body. Use it however you want. 
how did we get from here to there? And I don't want you to think for a moment it was you that brought you from here to there. That suddenly you just became brilliant. You were convinced by something. The Holy Spirit was working on you to awaken you to the truth. Or in this case, to show you that sledgehammer will lead to your death. And that torch is actually a better way. And so here, you're going to see Stalin do a flip in this. Now he's a very difficult character to get to do a flip because he is obstinate and he is proud and arrogant. And so how do you get <laughs> someone who's proud and arrogant to come to a point where they see the, the benefits and the wisdom and the brilliance of a different way that goes directly against what they have adamantly stood for all these years? So the convincing of the soul when you are already convinced that self-love and self-preservation are the right strategy for life, the idea of dying to self, picking up your cross and following this crazy radical known as Jesus isn't easy to swallow. So when you are convinced that life lived for self is the best way to live, it is a very difficult thing to get from there to radical givenness to Jesus Christ, which is, of course, exactly what the devil's trying to do. He's trying to get it to the point where it's impossible for us to somehow escape our thinking, our craving for self-comfort, uh, for self-aggrandizement. Uh, we want life on our terms. You have uh, Stalin in the exact same boat. He's only thinking about Soviet Russia. It's like the only thing that's in his head. When he dreams at night, he dreams of Soviet Russia. He doesn't dream of Great Britain making it through the war or America coming out healthy. He only is thinking about himself. And this is just how we're wired too. We're sinners. And so we pop out of our mother's womb and we are bent like Stalin. That sounds terrible, I, I know. But it's true. And we're thinking about Soviet Russia. That's all we care about. And so as a result, it's like, you should give me something. You should send your resources over here. And you've convinced yourself into a corner of saying that, I know why I have to be so dogged in this. Because if... We lose, they're going to lose. And so it, they, it behooves them to take care of us. Everything is about self. So the convincer, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, I, I, I just want you to chew on that idea of him being the convincer, capital C, convincer. So we have a meeting in Moscow, August 12th through 17th, 1942. And I'm going to unveil for you Winston Churchill's strategy. In his memoirs, this is actually a pretty big section. And surprisingly so. It's like, what could be? But he's going to go into great detail because he needs to log every conversation that they're having in great detail for all of the people back in Great Britain and for history because this is like monumental. He is allying with a country that technically, ideologically, they're opposed to. So as a result, he's going to handle this with kid gloves. Very different than the way he's going to chronicle everything with Roosevelt because this is highly sensitive. This nation is going to be the arch rival in the years to come. And so the way that they're going to handle this is, is going to be with great detail and precision. So as a result, we get a lot of good information. I mean, very specific quotes from these conversations are all written down. So I'm not going to go into a lot of depth, but I'll give you the, sort of the skim over the top uh, version of it. It's, it's really interesting. Churchill's strategy is this. It must be personal. Therefore, he is actually going to, even though he's weak in health, he is going to travel all the way to Moscow to meet face-to-face -face with Joseph Stalin. The worst should be expressed first. He's going to give the bad news first, which is a very 
interesting thought process because most of us want to couch what we do. He is not going to couch anything. He is going to travel there, be face to face, and he is going to let the naked truth just sort of hang out there. We're not going to do sledgehammer. And he's going to let it hang in the air. And even as you're reading, you're like, well, give him a hint that there's something better. He's just going to let it sink in. And so, you know what's interesting? The way that God deals with us, he lets the naked truth just hang in our soul for a bit. And that is what we could call the bad news. He's, he's not against it. He knows that for whatever reason, there's a necessary process that we work through of that convincing and of that conviction where we see the exceeding sinfulness of sin. We see our need for a savior. Many of us want to skip that step. And we even want to help other people skip that step because it's not very pleasant. Any more than it's going to be in this story. There's a very awkward stretch <laughs> in this story where it's just like, ah, I, I mean, I'm, I'm uncomfortable. I'm in Moscow. And everything in Moscow, even when they're driving down the street, they have wind, windows that are two inches thick on, on the glass. So, like, could you imagine a car with a two-inch thick window? just to be safe. In other words, this is like a very unique environment, very different than Great Britain so, and America. So we, I show up there, I feel like everything is awkward and weird and it's a totalitarian government and everything's odd there. Then after the worst has been expressed, after that the plan for victory. So that's the good news. This is actually the same pattern. It's personal. He's going to come to this earth He's going to give up his life personally. Then, even when the Holy Spirit is reaching us, he is going to come to our life personally, face to face, or soul to soul, spirit to spirit, if you want to say it that way. And he's going to reveal to us the bad news first. You have a problem. You have rejected the Most High God, and you need a Savior. And then, oh, and by the way, let me tell you about that Savior. However, he first has to warm us and ready us to be able to hear. So Winston Churchill, uh, this is going to be in direct relationship. I think this is like August 12th, uh, 1942. I reached the Kremlin and met for the first time the great revolutionary chief and profound Russian statesman and warrior with whom for the next three years I was to be an intimate, rigorous, but always exciting, and at times even genial, association. Our conference lasted nearly four hours. Now this is going to be a multi-day thing. So this is just the first little... Uh, stretch. The first two hours were bleak and somber. I began at once with the question of the second front. So the term second front is going to be uh, on the front of warfare. He wanted Sledgehammer to be a second front, which would then distract the Germans. Okay, so that's what it means by a front, and the second front is the term they're oftentimes going to use for Sledgehammer. So begin at once with the question of the second front, saying that I wish to speak frankly and I would invite complete frankness from Stalin. And then I'm going to skip all these little uh, sub-paragraphs. I'm, I'm skipping tons of stuff, okay? I'm just giving you the, the flavoring. At this point, Stalin's face crumpled up into a frown, but he did not interrupt. What do you think Churchill's saying at this point? We're not doing sledgehammer, okay? So you could, you could feel it. Stalin, who had begun to look very glum, <laughs> seemed unconvinced by my argument and asked if it was possible to attack any part of the French coast. All right, all right, so you're saying you're not going to do sledgehammer. Well, where else could we attack along the French coast? Let's reinvent something else. We need to attack the French coast. 
He then said that there was not a single German division in France of any value. A statesman, a statement which I contested. There were in France 25 German divisions, nine of which were of the first line. He shook his head. I said that I had brought the chief of the imperial staff and General Sir, Sir Archibald Wavell with me in order that such points might be examined in detail with the Russian general staff. So no matter what Churchill says, Stalin is going to say, ah, that's ridiculous. There's no uh, French troops there that could possibly, or I'm sorry, German troops that could possibly defend it. And Churchill's like, yes, there are. There's 25 divisions, nine of which are of the, the top order. They're good. In other words, Hitler knows that he can't just leave it naked over there. He needs to cover his bases, and he has. Stalin doesn't believe him. Stalin, whose glumness had by now much increased, <laughs> this is quite a ways into the story, by the way. So Stalin's not doing well. Are you guys catching that? That's us in this story. Didn't I prepare you for that? That's us, that there's this dark glumness that sort of comes first before you awaken to the light. Weird, strange process that we go through, but we have to come to the end of ourself. We have to, we have to come to grips with the fact that our way and what we're holding on to leads to death. Stalin, whose glumness had by, had by now much increased, said that as he understood it, we were unable to create a second front with any large force and unwilling to even land six divisions. Stalin, who had become restless, said that his view about war was different. A man who was not prepared to take risks could not win a war. He's really upset at this point. And he believes that Churchill is not willing to take risks. Well, you're afraid of the Germans? You're not willing to take risks? Boy, we Soviet... Soviets are so much more bold and courageous than you are. We're fighting all the time. You're like hanging out there on your island, scared to death of going across that little teeny channel and fighting someone. Come on, the Germans aren't that big of a deal. When are you going to be ready to fight? So a man who is not prepared to take risks could not win a war. Why were you so afraid of the Germans? He could not understand. His experience showed that troops must be blooded in battle. There was an oppressive silence. Now, I'm, I'm skipping. Okay, you guys know that. So I'm taking out a lot of the uh, chunks. There was an oppressive silence. Stalin at length said that if we could not make a landing in France this year, he was not entitled to demand it or insist upon it, but he was bound to say that he did not agree with my arguments. Uh-oh, guys. We're in a very difficult situation here, okay? Because this is a tenuous relationship, and it's very, very important that Great Britain somehow works out this relationship with Stalin. I know many of us are sort of like, why are you even talking with Stalin? That's on a, a different level. It sort of it sounds like we're talking with the devil, doesn't it? And it's in a strange way it is, okay? In this one, if you look at it politically, you understand that if Russia goes down, Germany then takes over Russia, takes over all of its resource, all of its farmland, all of its oil, all of its timber, and all of its soldiers, which are tens of millions. Okay, so who's going to rule the world if Soviet Russia goes down to the Germans? Germany. Germany's very limited in and of itself, but if it can take all this territory and begin to then bring it into its system, it'll be unstoppable. And it already has the Pacific right now with Japan. So this isn't looking good. So somehow, you see Churchill like, okay, we need to somehow support this uh, house of cards over here. I decided to get the worst over first and to create a suitable background for the project I had come to unfold. 
I did not therefore try at once to relieve the gloom. Isn't that an interesting statement? I did not try at once to relieve the gloom. Indeed, I asked specially that there should be the plainest speaking between friends and comrades in peril. The moment had now come to bring torch into action. So after all of this bad news, finally he gets to the topic of torch. I said that I wanted to revert to the question of a second front in 1942, which was what I had come for. I did not think France was the only place for such an operation. There were other places, and we and the Americans had decided upon another plan, which I was authorized by the American president to impart to Stalin secretly. I then explained precisely Operation Torch. As I told the whole story, Stalin became intensely interested. So what you're going to witness is the convincing of a very self-centered, obstinate man. I emphasized that we wanted to take the strain off the Russians. If we attempted that in northern France, we should meet with a rebuff. If we tried in North Africa, we had a good chance of victory, and then we could help in Europe. If North Africa were won this year, we could make a deadly attack upon Hitler next year. This marked the turning point in our conversation. This is really interesting to just read through because the, what's going to happen in Stalin is very interesting. Stalin seems suddenly to grasp the strategic advantages of torch. Very few people alive could have comprehended in so few minutes the reasons which we had all so long been wrestling with for months. He saw it all in a flash. Stalin is going to give a speech. I'm not going to put it on the screen. It would take too long. But he's going to give a speech, not, not a speech like standing up on a stage, but he is going to talk to this entire contingent. We basically almost have it word for word. And it's his response at this point, like he sees it. He's like, well, if we did this, then there are four things that would happen. This would happen, this would happen, this would happen, and this would happen. He sits back. He's like, that's a good plan. You have someone who is so dead set against anything but sledgehammer, but the way Churchill is going to walk him through this is masterful. He's the diplomat of diplomats, the capital D diplomat, of diplomats is the Holy Spirit. He knows where we're at and he knows how to bring us into his plan. He is a master at bringing us to the better because many of us will hold on to a bad plan because that's just what we've always done. It's a, it's a weird propensity that we have. We just have a very strong grip on things in our life. This is what I want to do with my life. This is where I want to go with my life. This is how much money I want to have in my life. This is the way I think life should go. When in actuality, God says, actually, there's a better version of life, and it, it's not going to look like that. It doesn't mean that you have to be poverty-stricken. You can't, you know, say your plan was to go to China. It doesn't mean you don't end up in China somehow, some way. But you have to let go of your way, your approach, and let God redefine. Many of us have gone through this process in, in varying degrees. But I'm fascinated, and that's what I'm wanting to focus on today, of how God does that. So Joseph Stalin is you and me, Winston Churchill, a picture in this story of the Holy Spirit. Paul the Apostle in 1 Thessalonians 1.5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power, and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance. So this gospel, this good news, if you were to liken that to torch, the attack on uh, North Africa actually is good news to Stalin. He just can't see it. Because it's going to be a second front. It's going to massively distract the Germans. 
And if it's successful, it'll set up a huge distraction in the Mediterranean, which will then free up France to be hit on D-Day. And so what you're seeing is it's a brilliant maneuver, and it's actually in the best interest of Stalin, but he can't see it at first. That's Christian life in a nutshell. Everything that God is asking us to do, pick up your cross. Like, I don't want to pick up a cross. Follow me. Deny yourself. What? Relinquish your life to the living God. He bought it with a price. It's, it's his. Offer yourselves as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing unto him. Yeah, you'll be like sheep among wolves. Like, what? This is terrible. On the outside, looking in, it does look bad. It looks like we're trading out this great self-pampered existence for hanging on a cross. And that it just doesn't seem like a reasonable exchange. What we don't see is that though there's a narrow channel here of letting go of our life, of giving up our life, what we don't oftentimes see is the capital L life that comes as a result, the empty tomb life, the life that bursts forth. And no matter what we go through in this life, we are filled with the joy, the love, and the peace of God. And nothing can push us down. And we have it for all of eternity. We have intimate fellowship with the Most High God. And nothing can separate us from that love of God in Christ Jesus. How, we're skewed. We focus on loss. Loss to our plan. Loss to our personal sledgehammer. We're stuck on sledgehammer. And as a result, the Holy Spirit has to woo us, has to prepare us, has to convince us to see that capital L life is so much better than our lowercase l life that we actually are losing if we hold on to it. You see, if we hold on to our life in this present age, we lose it. But if we will give it up, we are going to gain something so much greater. Operation Torch is superior, but we need to see it. So it says, this good news, this gospel, did not come to you in word only. It wasn't just a telegram from Winston Churchill, you know, from across uh, the, the world to say, hey, yeah, we're not doing sledgehammer. We're doing torch instead. I, you could just imagine how effective that would have been on Stalin. Okay, yeah, we're not doing sledgehammer, we're doing torch instead. You know that God could have communicated with us that way too? Yeah, you need to lay down your life and die. And uh, that, that's the plan. Uh, so you shouldn't live for yourself, you should just give up your life. We're like, okay, no thank you. No one on earth is going to choose those because all of us are bent towards self-interest. So how did we all come to the place where we see the virtue of letting go of our life, picking up a cross, denying ourselves, and following him? <laughs> How did we get there? It's personal. Personal visit from the Most High God. Face to face. And he explained to us the bad news. If you stay in this place, here's what's going to happen. You see, I love you. And I desire you to be set free. But you know those chains? You have no key to get them off. I have it. But to have those unlock, you need to trust me. Will you trust me? Where are you going to take me? I have a plan for you. But it involves you letting go of your life as you now know it. How much of my life? All of it. Your dreams, your ambitions, your resources, your talents. You need to entrust those to me. And if you do, you'll see the chains will unlock and it will actually open up a frontier that you can't see right now. 
All you see when you stare at towards Christianity is a prison wall. However, when you give your life to Christ, that prison wall will disappear and you'll see what's beyond it. And that is the endless frontiers of his grace, his glory, his beauty. There's like mountains, majesty behind it. You know, waters that are glimmering and you know, like lakes and, and streams and uh, you, birds gah, gah, flying and deer prancing. There is something so amazing out there, but in our limited Stalin view, all we see is a concrete wall in that direction. I don't want to go in that direction. Why would I purposely just lay down my life? I have a lot of living to do over here. Because God knows best, and we trust him. Why do we trust him? It's a strange question. We've been convinced. So, it says, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much assurance. So this word for in much assurance, which is the work of the Holy Spirit, if I had more time I could teach you on it, there's a verb and then there's a noun form of this, pleroferio and pleroferia. Okay, this is the noun version. Pleroferio is actually the process of convincing someone. This is what the Holy Spirit does. So when you study the Holy Spirit, you'll see this word associated with them. He's a convincer. And when he, but what his end game is, is to bring us to full assurance, to bring forth the most certain confidence, to bring us to a place of being absolutely convinced and completely persuaded. That's what he's done in me. You ask me certain things and you'll notice I'm very strong in my faith. You know, you talk about spiritual gifts. It's like, Eric, what's your spiritual gift? One thing I do know is I have faith. And it's like, it's a big deposit of it. Well, where did I get that from? Uh, the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit has entrusted me with something to the point where I am convinced. I know the word of God is in fact God's word. I believe it when it speaks. And as a result, that's changed my life. This thick-skulled premier. Now remember who we are in this story? We're the thick-skulled premier. We're, we're Stalin. I know, sorry about that, guys, that I threw us under the bus and made us Stalin in this story. He needs to humble himself and realize that the world doesn't revolve around him. If he would be willing to let go of Sledgehammer, there is a much greater plan of action. It's there. There's a much greater plan of action for all of us. So Solomon is going to say it in Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. So all throughout Proverbs, you're going to see the twos. Fool, wise. And the fool is going to consider his own perspective the only way. And he is right in his own eyes. He is wise in his own eyes. Stalin, classic picture of the fool, by the way. Sorry to throw us under the bus again because we're Stalin in this story. But this is how we all start. We start with this idea that we know what is best for our life even. And you take, if we were to bring in a whole bunch of non-Christians in here and say, what is best for your life? you get sort of the hunch that they're not going to say to lay down my life and give it to Jesus Christ, right? Otherwise, they would probably be doing that if they actually thought that that was the best. Now, some people, there is sort of that, those people that are caught in the middle. They know they're sinning. They know they shouldn't, and they really know they should be walking with Christ. So it's possible. But for the most part, the lost world out there is convinced that they know what is best. And it is to shoo away God, not to give up their life to God. 
the upside down kingdom. Much of what I currently believe to be right, so currently, right now, what, much of what I believe to be right, there was a time when I viewed it as wrong. That's a fascinating meditation for my brain. I remember looking, there were, there were a few things that I decided that I never wanted in my future. I did not want to be a teacher because they were paid poorly. I did not want to be a missionary because they were like weird and radical. And uh, I forgot what the other one was. Oh, pastor. Did not want to be a pastor because that was like, it would socially ostracize me from having an influence because once you wear a clerical collar, then everyone treats you different, right? And no one will really be honest with what they're really thinking because they'll give you the answer that, you, that they know you want to hear. And so I was like, I don't want to be any of those, okay? That, in, the, in the Ludi line, there's seven generations of pastors. So I, I don't want that. I don't want to be uh, a pastor, a teacher, a missionary. Then I added something to it later, which was a prophet, which whether or not I even know what that would be defined as, uh, it's someone who would have their long bony finger, and usually a prophet's finger is about double the length of everyone else's finger, and they stand, you know, on a street corner or something like, <laughs> And I was like, no, 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 no. Someone who speaks the word of God with sharp clarity in a generation, no. Okay, so if you were to measure my life right now in light of those four things that I just said and say, so Eric, how'd that go for you? It's weird because I decidedly like mapped out things that I said, I do not want to do that. I didn't say I don't want to be an astronaut. I didn't say I don't want to be a cowboy, right? I had no comment on those things. But I did say teacher. What did I become? Teacher. I did say missionary. You know what I've spent most of my life doing is missions and then training missionaries. And then pastor? Oh, you should have seen me drag my heels in becoming the pastor here at Ellerslie. It was like, no, okay, guys, I want to, I'm, I'm fine leading the training, but I think the pastor should go to someone else. I mean, this is literally how it started. Here's the decision. It's like, okay, guys, I'm willing to do it right in the beginning, but let's, let's be looking and praying for someone else to fill this role. I did not want to be a pastor. Even just the title was awkward for me. And then whatever this prophet thing is, I, I don't know that my finger's really long, but I do know that God has put me in a situation where I need to speak something that no one around me is willing to speak, and he says, speak it. So I don't know what that is classified as. It's definitely not a capital P prophet, I'll say that. But it's definitely that lowercase p awkwardness where I feel like I'm wearing a camel skin loincloth and my hair's all awry and I'm popping locust and wild honey for lunch. The upside down kingdom, much of what I currently believe to be right, there was a time when I viewed it as wrong. And I think probably if we were to analyze each of us, we would recognize that there's a similitude between all of us on that front, that certain things that we now are convinced are the best way to live our life, there was a time when we looked at it askance with a John eye going, oh, I don't, don't want to go in that direction. The Dubber Principle. When you open yourself up to God's ways and trust that he knows best, then he changes your mindset, convinces you of his brilliance, and even plants the desires in your heart. When I was first married, I, I was scared of kids. I, I know it sounds terrible, but it was a real thing where we were traveling all over the world speaking, and I felt like in my own rationale, it was very Stalin-esque, my own rationale, I'm thinking, well, that would hinder us from being able to be obedient to God. And so I found that there was a certain damper pedal that I was putting on 
unwittingly in a certain way to say, yeah, yeah, we, we probably shouldn't have kids until we're done traveling and speaking. Well, that went on for a long time. And so Hudson's not born until 10 years into our marriage, just to give you guys sort of the landscape of that. And some of the, the undercurrents of it were a fear and anxiety of that, but I was using my own rationale because God's rationale is very different. Children are like arrows in the hands of a warrior. And then if you have kids, you'll, you'll notice it's like, well, I, I, it sure doesn't feel like they're making me stronger. I mean, kids actually absorb time, absorb resource, and make life more challenging, right? And what does that do to you? It makes you stronger because you have to rise up. It makes you a warrior. It truly does. And so as a result, I have become more effective and more powerful in ministry since I had kids than before when I was scared of what the kids would do to me. It's a really fascinating thing, but I had to be, had to be walked through a process by God. So we have Hudson, and then uh, if you've ever heard our story, we had a miscarriage, and that's going to lead to the adoption of Harper. And so we have, at this point, two kids, which was shocking because we had no kids, and then in 10 years, you know, we suddenly, or in 12 years of marriage, we suddenly have two, which felt like so many. I mean, we have two kids. I mean, how, how do you even survive? And we had all these book deadlines, and we had so much weight on our shoulders. So funny because so little weight compared to what I have now. But I remember God prepping us, and one day I went, if, if you had asked me even the day before, Eric, would you be open to adoption again? I would have been like, well, you know, I'm, of course I'm open. I'm open, but uh, I don't feel like God's leading us in that direction. You know those great spiritual answers that you can give to sort of steer it, which is true, though. It's not a bad answer. It's just I wasn't open in the classic sense of like, yes, Lord. I was more like, well, God, if you send out an angel and you speak with an audible voice and some bolt of lightning comes down then. And so... I have this encounter with this young girl named Bex, and well, actually, it was right before that. Leslie and I were talking and praying, and we were like, I feel like we need to be open again for adoption. And it was strange, because just, and we were both convinced of that, but we weren't going to pursue it, and the next day, I run into this girl, who, and the story is just extraordinary. It's the story of Dover, who's my, my third child. That's what we call him. That's his nickname. His name is Kipling. And I call this the Dover Principle. When you pursue Jesus and you say, God, I want your mind, not my own. I don't want to be stuck in my sledgehammer thinking. I want your thoughts and your mind, whatever that is. I'm, I'm willing to be vulnerable to that. I remember I was up and we had this room above our garage. We called it the upper room and then we'd pray in there every day. And I remember walking around and praying and I was asking God for the privilege of bringing this child into our home and being his father. And I paused, and I stopped, and I said to Les, I go, okay, I'm going to just point out the obvious here. that we, It should be obvious to both of us. We're the couple that was scared of having kids, and now we are boldly asking for the privilege of parenting someone else's kids. Do you see how strange that is? In other words, what God did in us was he changed our thinking, he changed our heart, he changed our entire attitude. We have six kids now. And in each one of the situations, if you asked me again right now, Eric, would you be open to a seventh? Then I would be in that, doing that dance routine again, going, well, you know what? <laughs> but at every step, God prepares you to see his Operation Torch instead of our Operation Sledgehammer. Let's uh, finish with this scripture. 
delight yourself also in the Lord, and he shall give you the desires of your heart. When you make Jesus Christ your focus, and you allow the Holy Spirit to have his position, and you listen to him, you humble yourself and you say, God, I actually believe that you know what's best for my life. And you delight in that fact. He then plants, he gives you the desires of your heart. So we oftentimes look at that scripture as saying, okay, God, I desire a Ferrari, I desire a big house, and so I'm gonna delight myself in you so I can get those things. That's actually not how this works. You delight yourself in the Lord and he will begin to plant inside of you his very desires. So that what you're carrying around are his desires. You actually are excited about Operation Torch. You don't want Operation Sledgehammer anymore. What were you thinking? This is a far better way of living. And that's exactly the transfer that happens in the kingdom of heaven. You go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. You suddenly see clearly why. Because the Holy Spirit has been given access. So no matter where we're at today, we oftentimes have a sledgehammer in our life. We have something that we are, even unwittingly, doggedly holding on to as the best way. And so I just want us to freshly allow that work of Churchill upon Stalin to take place in our life, that the Holy Spirit's voice would be able to come in and say, trust me. Because sometimes what, looks, what God is proposing as a solution at first is going to lead to a glumness. It's like, oh God, no. However, if you trust the Holy Spirit, if you trust God's word, if you trust his ways, he always leads you into something greater than something lesser. His ways are higher than our ways. His ways are perfect. And so our job is to humble ourselves and allow him to take the lead. Father, we acknowledge that like Stalin, we can be obstinate and proud. And we can think that our thoughts are higher than yours. We can think that our desires are superior to your desires for us. But Lord, we humble ourselves right now and we acknowledge that you know best. And what you desire for our lives is what we desire to have in our lives. Lord, bring about that convincing work Speak to us in the way you know we need to be spoken to and bring us to that place of understanding and of passion and of vision and of strength and energy to follow your way. It's in the precious name we pray. Amen. Daily Thunder is a listener-supported production of Ellerslie Discipleship Training. At Ellerslie, we are laboring to rouse the Church of Jesus Christ out of its lethargy and build brave-hearted Christians for such a time as this. Daily Thunder is delivered live and streamed daily Monday through Friday at 8.15 a.m. And our weekend service is streamed at 9 a.m. on Sunday mornings. Join us at live.ellersley.com. We invite you to visit us at the beautiful Ellerslie campus in Windsor, Colorado for a day, a week, or an entire season of gospel-centered spiritual training. Learn more at ellersley.com. Thanks for listening.